Welcome to Therapists Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Welcome to episode 20 of Therapists Uncensored. So, wow, what a week. The rallies and the activism and the intensity and the energy and the pain Um, We've certainly seen that from the chairs that we sit and really from no matter which side that you come from, because the country's certainly divided, uh, you're having big feelings either direction. And in one of the rallies, there was a sign, an African-American woman was holding a sign that said, where will you all be at the next Black Lives Matter rally, which I thought was poignant. And a few weeks before that, there there was a conference where there was many white therapists gathered And there was one uh, black therapist who said, you guys need to be, you know, we were all struggling to talk about race and race relations and racial identity. And the black therapist said, white people need to be talking to to white people about race. You don't need it. We're ahead of you. We're we're already talking about it. You guys need to catch up. You all need to talk about it among yourselves. So we agree. And this is what this podcast is going to be about, racial identity And we come at this with the full awareness of our, well, with a conscious awareness of what we can be aware of because we know that we, there are things that we can't understand with our white privilege and our upper middle class access and our white identities. But, you know, with hat in hand, we do want to be part of the conversation and we have guests on the show today that are going to help facilitate this. Rudy Lucas and Christine Schmidt. But before I do that introduction, I just want to say one thing, which is that this podcast is designed, or what we had in mind anyway, was as long as you are willing to engage in the conversation, then we want it to be welcoming. We don't want there to be shame either direction. You know, this obviously does not include people who are just out to hate. So just don't even be thinking about like that's that's not the conversation we're trying to have. But if you fall along a spectrum that you're interested in engaging and in relating and but you don't necessarily agree or understand, then that's the reach out and that's the bridge that we're wanting to create. And that's part of why I asked some questions that might raise some eyebrows like what about reverse racism and things like that. That's we talk about that and it gets very interesting. But I want to say that we do that from the perspective of actually making progress on this and moving the conversation. So that's our hope. And we're very excited. And then let me get right to the introductions. We are delighted and privileged to have with us today Christine Schmidt, who is a clinical social worker and mediator for the New York Peace Institute and organizer with the Anti-Racist Alliance. In addition, we've got Rudy Lucas, who has worked in Greenwich Village for over 20 years in the field of addiction and mental health, and he is a member of the Anti-Racist Alliance. He has shared his expertise as far away as St. Petersburg, Russia. They both serve on the board of directors of the Eastern Group Psychotherapy Society, and they co-chair the work group for racial equity. Now, as the interview starts, we had some serious technical problems during the actual interview, most of which have been totally cleaned up and the sound is good. But just for the first couple of seconds, you're going to hear a little bit of static, but it will clean right up within just a couple of seconds. So hang right in and take it away, Rudy. Thanks so much for your warm welcome and warm hospitality at our recent visit to Austin. If I had known you guys were so distributed around the globe, I would have dressed up for this 
broadcast. Okay. <laughs> 59 countries, I think. But we did receive a wonderful, warm greeting at the temple and the times are every bit as challenging, if not more so, and we see it in our practices. Just to quickly give you a little thumbnail about myself is to let you know that I'm a 75-year-old African-American heterosexual father of the three best-looking little grandchildren that you've ever seen in your life. And I've had a private practice in the West Village, that's Greenwich Village, where for the last 25 or 30 years I've been committed to wiping out all chemical dependency and all mental illness for the last 30 years. So I've got job security. But things have changed recently with the temple of the times and people's bringing what they bring into their group. And Christine, if that's comfortable. Absolutely. I wanted to um, just describe a little bit about how I've come to this work. I'm a psychotherapist. I identify as white, also a social worker by training. I worked for many years in the public school system in New York City and was a part-time therapist. And the work I did in the public school system led me into a lot of anti-racism organizing. I wasn't certain if there was going to be a bridge I could build between my anti-racist commitment and psychotherapy work, but maybe about four or five years ago, began to test the waters. And I, um, I developed a workshop that was offered in a, a Brooklyn group psychotherapy discussion group. And I can't remember the exact title, but it was something like um, Becoming a White Psychotherapist, Moving from Race Unconscious to Race Conscious, the title was so, but it was so obscure. Rudy came down to this workshop ready to blast me out of the water for having a title that sounded so white supremacist. I mean, it, was, it really was an ambiguous sounding title in many ways and realized that I was there talking about anti-racism. Anyway, that, that's how we first met each other. And since that Brooklyn Discussion Group, we have developed and offered and co-facilitated many, many workshops for different professional groups, community groups, including our wonderful conference in Austin for the group psychotherapists. And then about six months ago, started talking about, wow, at the end of every workshop, people ask for more, more, more. And so we have been offering short-term racial literacy consultation groups for therapists that go over a 12-week period. It's sort of a short-term group. So, uh, so that's what we're currently working on together in addition to many workshops and conferences. So, I wonder if you have found increased interest in this with all of the things that are going on after the election, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, I just wonder if that has increased people's interest in the kind of offering you and Rudy are doing. I think I can concretize that for you a little bit. When we rolled out phase one, which was September, the first or second week, we had probably 50 or 100 hours of marketing and outreach to make it happen. And we've arrived at the same place for phase two, which we began marketing efforts for about week, 10 days, maybe two weeks ago, and we're three-quarters of the way to the number that we had taken several months to get to. We're suffering the dilemma of who are we going to turn down. 
But it's not, uh, but the single thing that's changed is not that more young men have been shot by cops than is the norm, but that we've had a change in the administration, the obvious focus, that for people that have been able to not have to feel that they have to stifle themselves about their true feelings, we encounter our colleagues in great distress, not just in their own world, but in terms of managing their, their populations, their group peers. So... That's the single biggest thing. I think that this year has also brought an awareness about racism amongst people who call ourselves white, that this is something that is a central concern and responsibility, and that it's one that is kind of new because... We haven't thought about race as much as people of color who suffer racism from totally the, well who who suffer the oppressive aspects of racism. I think you know we all suffer it sometimes we're not uh, we're not aware of what the suffering is exactly yeah. Christine. that's actually what I was just thinking was on one hand, there's this surge of people interested in this kind of training and knowing that we need the depth to be able to sink into understanding the complexities of it within ourselves and in the community. But on the other hand, I mean, what I'm observing, I think we see it publicly, is the rise on the other side too, right? And I think about even in my own groups um, and just groups of people that I know, uh, people saying, what do you mean privilege? Nobody's given me a hand up. And understandably being, like you said, have never thought about it and don't understand it and don't know what people mean. You know, how do we bridge that kind of a wide divide? And then, you know, that's different than people burning an effigy or marching in sheets, of course. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult place because... We are, we're we're not exposed to really thinking historically. And in order to understand privilege in this country, we have to be able to think and understand historically. I, I think one of the ways people who call ourselves white have been able to avoid thinking about racism for so long is because we've had a a faulty definition of racism. And, you know, think of it as, you know, as Peggy McIntosh has, has so beautifully described, acts of meanness that a person from one group commits against a person of another group. And as, as long as we're thinking of racism as an act of meanness, then it's really hard to see privilege as something that has been handed down historically. It was so much easier to witness Bull Connor police dogs fire hoses, and the currency of the 1970s than it is to understand that this is more than bad people doing bad things to good people or to other bad people, but it's the notion that the idea of institutional plays in and that institutional bias contributing to internalized feelings of superiority and also some sense of internalized inferiority in people that define themselves as of color. So it's probably not going to be understood as privilege until the historical piece is amplified. And it's in those amplifications that most of the joy and the fun and the stimulation, the energy in the room that keeps it going is psychoeducation, the notion that 
there are these people that have written about these things and thought about these things far longer than any of us. And when introduced to the chance to have some of these readings, and that's part of our commitment, is to provide an access page of resources and assets. We find that people reluctantly come off the dead center about, well, I'm not one of those people, and my family came here as immigrants. Kind of talk that we always get. We've begun to think of that as race avoidant, but we have had a justification for the kind of work that we do. Think supervision. We call it consultation, but for people who have taken a toll into the water, at least, they end up feeling a bit uncomfortable with are they trafficking in new ways of thinking and acting and talking, and what parts of their history are still with them. So that's why Christine does a really wonderful help from a historical perspective. You know, I w- when we were preparing for this, I looked up the word privilege, and it talked about another word for it was immunity. And I thought that was so interesting because we who identify as white— don't have to, every time we walk out in the street, wonder, you know, if a cop is going to stop us. If we go to a shop, we don't have to wonder if someone's going to follow us around. And so it's invisible. It's, if you're immune to it, you don't see it. Right. So privilege definitely comes in the form of access, immune to that kind of hurt. And it's also And it's been handed down historically, like who gets to live in what neighborhoods, who gets to go to what school. So what about the reverse racism? You know, all lives matter. There's no such thing, from my point of view, of reverse racism, because the the determining factor is access to power. And oppressed populations have never been known to have any kind of power sufficient to have their feelings, thoughts, and wishes codified into the law. I get a little impatient when I try to articulate this because I've always found it to be race avoidant. There is a place where there are folks that do imagine that they're being discriminated against, but there are, people can be guilty of prejudice, people can be guilty of discrimination, they can be guilty of judgment, they can have all those pejorative kind of definers, but racist they cannot be in the absence of power. And the power differential determines completely that. But they can be prejudiced. Prejudice can go either way. Yes. And that's one of the distinctions that we really want to make, that racism has a very, very particular definition. As, As Rudy said, that critical piece has to do with power and historical power. That's a really, really good point. Whereas prejudice, and I even think about some of what you all have talked about with this continuum of black identity and white identity. And there are periods along that continuum where that one might have a strong prejudice for or against one's own identity. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, I often tell the story in the kind of statuses or the the continuum of of racial identity development that Rudy and I have worked from was developed by Janet E. Helms and William Cross. Their their models of development definitely start from places of powerful internalizations of stereotypes and negative images of people of color so that white people begin at, at this kind of general low stage of development 
really with very bigoted stereotype views. And as development kind of moves along that continuum from abandoning that kind of racist way of thinking to to evolving a white identity, that internalized hatred has to be looked at and understood. And I mean, Rudy, you have done so much work with Colorism, Colorism. yeah, which is that same kind of internalization of self-hatred. Rudy, could you define colorism for our listeners? Yeah, it it was defined best for us by Alice Walker sometime in the 60s when Alice Walker said that colorism can be understood as privilege or prejudice being bestowed upon a class of people, even same-race people, when the determinant feature is the color of the skin. So are you talking about a lighter-skinned black person feeling they're superior to a darker-skinned black person? Yes, and the access to power and the access to property, the two main determinants of accumulation of resources and wealth and an inheritable estate for our peers, for our, for our offspring, is very much founded upon very traditional ways of superiority that makes the case why racism is so ubiquitous that people that are oppressed from racist people of superiority status turn out doing similar things to people within their own community, intra-race. It starts with this notion of internalized inferiority, and the case that comes to mind is the Dolls experiment that Dr. Kenneth and Mamie Clark had perfected in the 1930s and was the foundation in the early 50s, 1954, when Thurgood Marshall presented before the Supreme Court of the United States the results of this doll study where children in a public school in Washington, D.C. were contrasted with a control group of students in New York City's public school upon the use of two dolls given to these children who were seven, eight, nine years of age, and a series of seven questions were introduced and asked. And we introduce in our workshops these images of these exact children with Dr. Clark in the background, where the two dolls that are introduced are exactly the same, except that one of them is got white skin and blonde hair. The other has brown skin and kinky hair. And you have to see the poignant look on the faces of the children as they reach out to the doll that they identify most with. And the confusion that's on the face of the children, not knowing why they're reaching for the white doll with blonde hair. And it was the, uh, we don't have the time to go through the particulars of the seven questions, but the net result convinced the court, the United States Supreme Court, that separate is, in fact, not equal. And that was Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954. You know, Rudy, I've seen some of those pictures, and it's heartbreaking. It is exactly the word. And we have the literal pictures of the test with Dr. Clark in the images. And the looks on these dozen children, it's the intro into helping people understand how institutionalized is the imprint that has the determining feature. Because just as surely as... these little children are invariably, 46% of the, 50, 56% of the children picked the wrong doll in terms of appropriate identification. They only went from their heart and from their spirit. But by the same token, superiority concepts are equally as internalized. And when people begin to look from those perspectives, we start to make some. Well, some and, and we internalize those ideas so young. I mean, so we're talking about development 
of a racial identity, but, but we're also realizing in human development that very, very young people are already beginning to identify and, and put values on how they see themselves racially. Even though many white people grow up not even thinking that we have a race because everything is kind of normed on, on whiteness. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you had mentioned that spectrum starting with hatred. And it's the first time that I heard it was in the workshop that we heard of you all. It's funny, I didn't take it in that way when I first heard it. I was imagining that it started with just like kind of an innocence, like a non-awareness of any difference. So it's kind of like I'm thinking about the dolls. I'm not aware that I have any feeling about this other doll. I just want this doll. You know, I, I don't I'm, I don't have a conscious hatred towards this doll. So that's just one set of thoughts that I have. And in order to reach across the divide, because right now I have very strong feelings about what's happening politically and, you know, who's being put in place in the administration and the power. Rudy, you keep talking about codification and power what and the fear that that evokes in many of us about what can happen there yeah or what can what can continue to happen that has been with us for 400 years superiority and oppression is not unique to the united states and but people from all over the globe come to the united states to study and research its effects it's handled differently here in the way in which it's codified into the law it has been since the 1620s in jamestown that makes it a unique feature here and it's so deeply imprinted that it's in the DNA, it seems to be, and it causes the suffering of the class that sees itself as superior in ways different, but just as impactful in many cases, but that's another matter. Well, actually, I appreciate you saying that. I think that's some of what I was trying to get at. As a matter of fact, I think that was why the, that side in the election, not as there's one reason, but that they won was that they accessed this tremendous feeling of threat and um, this pain that obviously had been missed. I'm just trying to bring like that there's two branches happening, right? And it, there, there's almost an impulse to match the aggression with aggression. Yeah, yeah. And when people are trained to defy peacefully it sets in a whole new wrinkle. The best examples are Dr. Martin Luther King, of course, but also Mandela. Mandela, in 27 years of imprisonment, had the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness at all times that made him superior to his guards. It wasn't more than a year or two in that they became aware that they, as guards, were being intimidated by a very righteous, very righteous a very humble, a very clear-thinking man of color. But he could see that he was freer in his shackles than they were in their uniforms, even though they went home at night. Oh, that's, uh, that's a beautiful reference. And that's some of what I've been struggling with around, like, we as therapists have some influence on being able to help people uh, come to terms with some of this uh, period of threat that we're under. And so when, I guess when the white man says, well, of course, I'm glad he won. Every comic, every black comic can make fun of a white man. But if a white man were to do that to a, you know, say something like that against an African-American, that would be considered racist. Right. 
Like that's those that's the kind of like they're feeling against the rope. It's like how do we begin to with with a MLK, you know, Nelson Mandela bridge that? How do we begin to listen listen to the fear and listen to the pain? Yes, and see yeah, see where they are and help move them in their own journey. Move them to a place of compassion and empathy. You know, even if it's a yard or a not, you know, whatever we would be able to do. Uh, the U.S. history during this era in the 17th century is replete with information about failed attempts to bring union between chattel Europeans brought here as chattel servants that, that had a seven-year indenture and the wish to keep them separate from freed slaves or from slaves that might get uh, eventually turned over by their masters, by their owners, at oftentimes the death of the owner, from coming together in their common cause. So everybody was incentivized to cater to the lowest common denominator. So people began to be demonized. And that job of demonizing and projecting a negative image around the people that you want to, to the people that you want to keep and cater to their lowest common denominator of fear, that role is played out in the in the 21st century by assignment editors or news editors at media outlets. At ABC, the person who decides what gets on the evening news at 6 and 11 is invariably going to lead with the most grotesque, the most uh, bizarre kind of thing. So we've always known about it, it bleeds, it leads. But when studies are done and research conducted, it shows how disproportionately and how organized the portrayal is done in order to continue to demonize and contribute to fear and end or superiority. But Sue, you're also asking how do we begin to reach across that divide? How do we begin to make the connections? How do we begin, maybe how, how do we as white people Right, because Christine, because think about our list, some of our listeners, we're going to have people from all across the spectrum. So we have a chance right now to speak to folks. Um, so uh, go ahead. Okay, well, I, I mean, what I was thinking about are dialogues that I've been part of that are within a white community where we try and understand some of the losses, the unmourned losses that ancestors within the white community have carried with them that have been held and losses that have been held on to as a defense against owning privilege and how important it is for us to be able to listen and hear about those unmourned losses that that a loss of an ideal of a dream that hasn't happened. Let's pause to thank our sponsor, Leslie University Mental Health Counseling Programs, where you can help others transform their lives with creativity and compassion. You can apply a social justice lens to mental health care and achieve your own goals through their master's and PhD programs. Online at leslie.edu slash mental dash health. Now let's return to our podcast. So, Christine, are you talking about maybe the immigrant from a country that was maybe discriminated against religiously and comes to the U.S. and then says, wait, but I didn't have responsibility for what happened here? Absolutely. And about the children and grandchildren of that immigrant, I don't think it is something that necessarily happens in real time right now. But I think even allowing that 
investigation to go back several generations and try and understand what was the dream that ancestors of people who now call themselves white were pursuing and and what were why was that dream elusive and what what went wrong and how do we understand the losses in that person's story that helps us understand the bitterness or the kind of racial competitiveness that that person might be experienced i i mean i think if if we're looking at ways to build bridges and develop empathy that's one of many different places to start and that's a beautiful response because i think earlier when sue was saying that you listen to someone who says what privilege you know nobody gave me anything i fought for everything I think it's the person is sort of speaking to those losses they personally had. Exactly. And and not in the context of, as you said before, immunity and access. Right. Yeah. But very personal mm-hmm. frustrations. Yes. Right. And I like, they're real. And I like being able to recognize personal frustration. And then in addition to adding this piece of the institutionalization of these harmful policies and the historical, you know, oppression, like being able to do both. Because if we, if we are only doing the histor- history, this person will, might stay in this defensive position. And then if we only look at, hey, nobody's given me a hand up, you know, if we only look at the individual, we lose the history and the institution. Well, I think people are given a hand up, and that's part of the temple and the community that I identify with when access to the sources of stability and, and economic progress are usually homeowning, voting, employment, education, and in all of those standards, people of color have been historically manipulated out of those places by redlining for neighborhoods by an unequitable distribution of job openings, the internalized feelings that come across the desk at a job applicant who's of color, I take issue with the fact that until you can't, we ask for an equal playing field, but we present it in this country as if the equal playing field has people of privilege on the 20-yard line in a 100-yard race. And anybody who doesn't think that they have benefited from Uh, inherited privilege has only to look at the ease comparatively of their grandparents or their great-grandparents entree into all of the avenues to the to the middle class. I agree with you totally but I think that if somebody feels like nobody gave me a hand up then we can't even start the conversation. And that's why I think it has to be white people talking to white people and When I find myself in the role of providing psychoeducation, my my righteous indignation and my aggression uh, gets mustered. But I do also know that we have been, as a community, talking with each other about this stuff for centuries, amongst ourselves, preaching to the choir. But all of a sudden, white people have become more willing to talk to other white people. And I think there's a great value in that. And I support and salute you guys as perfect examples of that. When I think about professional athletes in the National Football League uh, and their destructive, violent strategies that they've employed historically, 
are probably going to get healing and recovery, not so much from women who step to them with their inappropriateness, but from other NFL football players talking to each other. Well, and and Rudy, in in our groups, because our groups, the groups that you and I have done together have been multiracial, right? And and very intentional that way, because that's given, well, it's opened up so many, many opportunities to examine and experience in real time race avoidance, white fragility, black anger, microaggressions. I mean, there's so many that get acted out and and have offered opportunities for white people to talk to white people in the presence of people of color who get to witness what what the thinking and the experience and the and the feelings are. I think that's been one of the real the real rich benefits of our having multiracial groups and not and not limiting all of our work to the kind of same race affinity group work, which right. And I, also and I done. totally agree mm-hmm. with you, Rudy, when you said, um, you know, about the righteous indignation. I think that's why I kind of opened it with, how do you bridge this divide? Because we've got people protesting and resisting on one side, and then further institutionalizing these policies on the other, and you know, on a more individual basis, I think that these conversations are happening, you know, over partly with this election, what I've seen is like over Thanksgiving, for example, the fights are happening. So it's really sparked where that, you know, there's breaks in families now over these things. Uh, Not that there hasn't always been, but I have found myself in the same position that you're talking about where that I can't speak. That's what I call Tourette's, you know, where I'm just like, ah, and I want to strangle someone and I become, and what I'm saying is I become ineffective and I shame the crap out of somebody. It's not use. I become not very useful. I try to own that part of myself because they cut me a little bit of slack when I get older yes. down. <laughs> well, it's a really safe place to it's a safe place to be on a soapbox and and but also there's a reason we've like I don't know when there's been an injury there's it's a real injury and you're I this is part of why I so appreciate both of you stepping forward as you have these very real deep perspectives that you're willing to share with us so that we can all move a little further in our own process. The other thing I wanted to say, Rudy, is that I think a lot of these conversations are happening now that haven't been happening. And, you know, I think when we when we started talking, I was saying that every time I open the paper or turn on the radio or the television, it feels like people are struggling with understanding the racial situation and, you know, from all perspectives. And that discussion was not going on six or eight months ago. Well, as group facilitators, you're uniquely in an arena to make some impact because when we do fish bowls and observers, it's the most exciting energy in the room for people of color to see white folks struggling and coming out the other end and finding how much closer we are to being the same and similar than we ever would have imagined. As group facilitators, there is things, there are things that can be done and are being done. You're absolutely right. It's just as being done at a 
faster pace now or at a wider? I want to share with you both. Another thing that I took away from that event was you mentioned that these conversations, um, that safety is out the window, that safety has been a privilege. Out the window. Uh, particularly for white identified people. But yes. If for especially, especially for us. And the, yes, because... Because we're so accustomed to being comfortable and assume that it's our right to be comfortable. Or immune. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that you called for us to let ourselves be uncomfortable. Yeah. We could deliver on brave space, but not safe space. On brave space. That's right. So that was one of my takeaways. And I wanted to share with our listeners around that, that if, you know, to have those hard conversations and let your heart beat a little bit, and take noble risks uh, with good intentions. And in fact, what we really invite people to do is to be uncomfortable. We invite them to be uncomfortable and to move into a place that's uncomfortable and to stay there. The People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, where Rudy and I have learned so much from the Undoing Racism workshop, and they refer to that as your growing edge. And they say that that place where... We go to where we have to be brave enough to go to that's very uncomfortable is going to take us right to the growing edge, and that's where where we develop. And becoming more comfortable with being uncomfortable is in itself liberating. I, I think that's exactly right. Because part of it is if we can if we can know what no. we're feeling, then we can either choose to act or choose to hold and and not just be in this you know automatic place we can choose we can even feel when we're having more of a racial implicit bias we'll have more of a chance to catch it well and i think we also learn through practicing when to speak out more and if somebody is saying or doing something that is racially offensive, then we practice and we learn ways of interrupting that, of calling. I, I love the term calling someone in as opposed to calling someone out so that we, we really try hard not to shame a person. Shame is so paralyzing. But to be able to not let these aggressive moments sit there in the room without interruption and to stop it, to call the person in. We've had success with teaching aids. Jay Smooth is a New York City disc jockey and social activist, progressive, biracial, 30-year-old, 35-year-old maybe, who we use some of his four-minute clips, video clips, that show uh, ways successful and otherwise to bring race into the conversation. And we use other... Video aids. We have a what's the one that's about mosquito bites, Christine? Oh, I can't, I can't remember who. Yeah, mosquito bites. How microaggressions are like mosquito bites. That's it. You know, I wonder why I do this sometimes. Why am I so much off? So many times the other, where I might be the only or one of very few people of color in the middle of people in these dynamic tensions and struggle, because so many people in my community have opted out, myself included. It wasn't until I met Christine that I became willing to dust off some of the stuff that I had put on the shelf and return to a life of civil activism. But being the other in a majority comp, uh, construct that so many people from my community have said, man, you got to let these people do that shit for themselves. I can't 
take it because it's hit the ball and drag Harry again. It's I can't carry these people up the hill. Well, I I don't quarrel with that, but I have a fundamental need to witness that the world that I want to be part of and the people that I want to be connected to can, in fact, inform, expand, and grow. And I get to be witness to that as opposed to running away from it. Because I get that it's tiring and that it's not your job, but I also think that if we all retreat into our own communities, then it's much harder for change to happen. You're so absolutely right. But I ask you to remember that you are going to be offended by people of color expressing their honest thoughts and feelings and not wishing to edit anymore. Because when black bodies are being brutalized and boys are being shot, there's not much time. Baldwin helps us remember that it's the fire next time makes you already on the horizon. Yeah. So it's all part of that becoming more uncomfortable. And I love it in our youth because they call, they, they pull our coat to uh, every social movement has begun by young people. Right. Well, and I think that's what you, you and Sue were talking about when you talked about the brave conversations and making it a, was it a brave space? Brave space. Yeah. We can deliver on that. We can't deliver on safety. And if we do deliver safety, it's all bullshit because no work's getting done. <laughs> the work is the work. So I wonder if there's anything that you'd like to share before we wind this up, that there are some last thoughts that either of you would like to share? Christine, why do you do this work? <laughs> um this is something at this point in my life that I can't not do. When, when I finally realized and came to terms that I, was, that I am white and that I have inherited a whole lot of history with whiteness that I'm not proud of, but that I also realized that I can undo some of the oppression of privilege by working to make a more just and more fair world. And, and in this country, for us right now, it means tackling racism. So why am I doing it? For my children, for other people's children, for, it, it's, it's the only way going forward that I think we could all really live together as human beings and not as, uh, I, I don't wanna be, I don't wanna, think of myself or have my kids think of themselves in, in limited ways as oppressors. And I'll tell you, you, your story and even just the notion of white identity that doesn't have a Nazi feel to it, but that really has the kind of a image of a kind of an arc of coming to, like you said, that it involves loss and um, shame, but, but then coming to a place of acceptance and, you know, what can we do to uh, integrate and even a place of pride that it doesn't have the salute at the end of it um, is really, it's a hopeful feeling that I would have never, I didn't even know I didn't have. And then also just going back again to that continuum to learn about the arc of Black identity from a different perspective of even understanding kind of the place where, you know, everything, where there's the perspective of everything happening because of race. And I can understand that from different things in my own life, like gay identity or something like that. 
this is happening because of this. And, and being able to see that, there's just something about that that really helps me get my mind around the, I don't know, it, 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 there's something healing about it. And then, but also a similar movement. Go ahead. I, I want to really underscore that word healing. There is something very, very healing about moving toward in a direction of being able to see everyone's humanity. As long as we are only seeing the humanity as limited by a race, we're losing. And everyone's humanity in this arc of this developmental process and, the, and, the develop, and that's not one directional that moves back and forth. In the- oh, yeah, it sure does. <laughs> yeah, you know, Christine didn't mention that when I showed up with my anger at her, meeting her at a meeting for the first time in my life, uh, and I let her know uh, why I came, and I was beginning to get a glimpse of something entirely different. And what she did, she took a chart marker to the board, and she invited me to help her reconstruct and language it differently. And it wasn't in a put-down way. She she showed me an openness and a willingness to say, wow, I hadn't thought of that, and changed immediately. Now, if she hadn't adapted bravery instead of safety, she could have been very traumatized or at least impacted by this crazy, angry man that is coming thinking that he's invading a white supremacist kind of a thing, only to find out that this woman jumped into action to change the any perception. Then I got to hear about a half an hour later the Emilio story that you guys got to hear. I don't know if you remember that, but that's never left me. Is Emilio your son, Christine? Yes, he's my son. Yeah. Can we out you as the mom of an interracial son? Absolutely. Two, in fact. <laughs> yes. Do you remember that story? It, it's a fascinating story. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to recount the whole thing right now, but the, the central piece of that story was that I was, my sons were in their young adulthood before I really owned and recognized that I was white. I, I was so very immersed in being anti-racist that it, I never really thought about what race I, I had as an identity. And that was, um, it was very shocking. It was a very powerful story. Rudy, thank you for me reminding us about it. And it was really moving to hear you talk about how that moved you on your own development. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So are there yeah. any last minute like things that you would want our audience to really walk away with? Mine would be to read. Read and talk to each read other. What? Read Baldwin. Well, and I'm also gonna say read history. Know the history of this country and how it is absolutely if we don't understand chattel slavery, we are not going to understand the racial dynamics that are in the room right now. And go do an undoing racism workshop with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. Rudy, you were talking about other books. Something else you'd like read? Zinn. Uh, Isn't Zinn the... Howard Zinn, yes. Mm -hmm. Howard Zinn, C-I-N-N. Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, is the modern Baldwin. And and, um, our young people are diving into... The writings from the 60s and 70s and 80s. And I would invite you guys to our resource page 
if you don't already have it. Very good. Right. That's great. Yeah. The uh, Eastern, Eastern Group for Psychotherapy Work Group for Racial Equity has a resource page available on the website for anybody to see that has a lot of books, articles, uh, YouTube videos, films, good resources. And because we want the women's perspective, any female authors you want to recommend? Michelle Alexander. There we go. Carol Anderson. The uh, D'Angelo. What's D'Angelo's first Robin name? Robin D'Angelo. And Maya Angelo. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's great. Well, we so appreciate you taking the time, and you are so inspirational, and I know you will be to many more people. This has been a pleasure and an adventure. You guys have become part of our identifying of self when we talk now about workshops and they want to know who and where, and we just say from Boston to Austin. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's great. So you're with us. You're with us uh, regularly, all the time. And thank you for your generosity again in hospitality. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sure you noticed that there were lots of references through the show. And as always, you can find those on our show notes. And then within our show notes, there's also a resource section. So there's live links there that can take you directly through to books or to organizations. We really try to take care of our listeners and link you to the material that is mentioned. So that's part of our service. That's part of what we want to offer folks. So be sure and check that out. And also, of course, you can find Rudy and Christine there. And that's where you'll find their bios to reach us always at www.therapistuncensored.com. We always love to hear from you. And if you haven't filled out the survey yet, please do, um, because we would like to hear from you more directly with a couple of questions that we have. Okay, thanks for listening, and we will see you again soon. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Patty Alwell, and Sue Marriott. Cameron Lindsay edits the show.